The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. Good morning. Y'all know what it's like to be on mission, right? Oh, we, we think about it in spiritual terms, but it's pretty practical. Um, guys, girls, when you determine you want to get married, you're on a mission. You're looking. You're thinking. Everything is directed in that, that kind of category right there, right? If you decide you want to buy a new car, you're on a mission and you're going through, you're looking what you want, what's good, what lasts a long, you get on this mission. When we talk about being on mission, what we're really talking about is being very focused in everything that we do. In other words, everything I do, whether it's thinking, processing, what I do with my money, what I do with my time, all of those things are pointed in one direction. So everything I do in my relationships, everything I do with my finances, everything I do with my calendaring, all of those things, even though they may seem unrelated, will somehow come back to this focus. And so when we talk about being on mission with our lives, what it means is what is the ultimate culmination of your life? Um, those of us who live with a mission in mind, doesn't even have to be a spiritual one. We live with some end goal in mind. Maybe it's retiring with a certain amount of money. And so everything we're doing is trying to go in that direction. We're trying to put so much away every month. We're trying to make sure we don't spend too much. We're trying to make sure that we plan for anything that could take away from that. So we are on a mission. We have this end goal in mind. And so we all live on mission, whether we realize it or not. We live with some end goal in mind. Sometimes it's as simple and frivolous as pleasure. I live with this end goal. I just want to live with for all the pleasure I can find in this life. And at the end of my life, I just want to look back and go, you know what? I enjoyed everything this world and this life had to offer. Sometimes it's that simple and there's not a whole lot of planning. It's just enjoying from moment to moment. However, many of us live with a very determined plan for our life. We know where we're going. We have this idea of how we're going to get there, and we are working every angle to get to that. So when we talk about this idea of being on mission, we have to realize, first and foremost, everyone and everything has some kind of mission. Companies have mission statements that describe things that they're trying to accomplish for themselves. People live on mission as they try to accomplish the hopes and dreams that they've set for their life. Let me show you a, a billboard here that was up not too long ago throughout our country. What does that say? Quick, name a soft drink. What is it? How do you know that's Coke? Yeah, it doesn't have a label on it. I mean, the Coca-Cola is not black and white. It's, well, I mean, I guess Coke Zero is now, but when you typically think of Coke, you think of what colors? Yeah, you know what's amazing is... About 30 to 45 years ago, the CEO of Coca-Cola set a mission for the company. And his mission was this, I want that image to be recognized throughout the entire world. And you know what's amazing is they accomplished that. Everything they did was focused on that. Everything, all their advertisement put this bottle up in front of people. So much so that when you see a bottle like that, you don't think Pepsi, you don't think RC Cola, even though they come in very similar bottles. Immediately when you see that, you think Coca-Cola. And what's sad is throughout the world, you can go to some deepest, darkest parts of some continents and people will recognize that bottle, but they will not know what a cross is about. They were so determined 
and spent their money and spent their energy and spent their focus on making sure that that bottle is recognized throughout the world. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we have something even better to offer the world than they do? And that's what Paul's talking about here. As Christians, we are called to a specific mission. Now, I think it's very interesting a lot of times when churches have mission statements. Now, you probably noticed that throughout our auditorium and throughout the lobbies, you don't see a mission statement or a vision statement. And it's not that I'm critical of that, but it's just that it's already in there. It was, it was given to us. I can't build on it any better than what it was already stated there. We have this mission to make him known throughout the world. That's it. I mean, in simplicity, everything we do should be focused on making God known, giving glory to God, taking the gospel to wherever God's spirit would lead us. And so we are called to a specific mission. My question for you this morning is, what is your mission statement of your life? So in other words, that first thing that we talked about and what we have just talked about, are those two things the same? We think about what scripture calls us to and that there is a specific mission about going into the world and preaching the gospel, uh, of discipling, all of those things that Jesus commissioned us to do. Yet, when you look at the mission of your life, in other words, what you think about, what you're spending your money on, what you're spending your energy on, what everything is focused towards, when you consider that, does it match up with what scripture calls us to, to be on mission? As Christians, we don't get to set the mission for our lives. It's already been set for us. Christ is the one who determined that for us. And remember, Paul tells us in another place that we have been bought with a price. Our lives are not our own anymore. And so he's the one who sets the course for our life. And it's important for us to realize that the mission of Christianity really is a life or death mission. Life in the sense that if we accept this invitation that Christ gives to us and invites us into eternal life is ours. But if we reject that message of the gospel, then it's eternal damnation. Truly, the message of the gospel is a life and death message. So in our text here, Paul talks about his plan to visit Rome. It goes all the way back to the beginning of Romans. We're going to see that in a minute where Paul talked before he ever started this letter about his desire to be with these people, to meet them and to come and visit them and how he's not had a chance to do that up until this point. But Paul's going to talk about this, this desire to visit Rome. And he's going to talk about this passion that he has for the gospel. I don't know how many of you are into cycle racing. How many of y'all love watching the Tour de France? If you, if you are, then you know that today is what? That's it. Today is the final stage, stage 21. And so the, the and I guess so they're in France is probably already determined because they're ahead of us. I'm not sure exactly what time of day that it finishes, but I know that today is the day that they cross that finish line and the winner is determined. Now, I don't know how many of you watch the Tour de France. Probably not a lot of people. It's not a very popular sport for Americans to watch simply because Americans rarely win it. Um, usually it's Europeans or someone else. And so we had that one stretch, right? And the guy's name was Lance, Lance Armstrong. Yeah, and Lance Armstrong won a record seven straight Tour de France from 1999 to 2005. And every one of them have been taken away from him because of steroid use and abusing the rules. And so when we think about Armstrong and his passion to win this race, 
Okay. Even though he cheated and used means that were not deemed legal for doing that, I think it's very interesting when you think about his success and his perspective. And that is this. After he won his sixth race, a reporter came to him and said, what is the secret of your success? And this is how he responded. Now listen to his words. I live for the tour. Everything I do throughout the year has the tour in mind. My sole ambition every year is to win the tour. Now, of course, we know his ambition went too far, didn't it? I mean, literally, he's telling the truth. Everything was focused on that. Even if I have to cross some lines, even if I have to cheat, I am focused on this because this is what my whole life is about. So think about this for a moment. When our mission is focused narrowly on ourselves, when our mission is focused only on the things of this world and achieving things in this world with nothing to keep us in check, that kind of focus can become very unhealthy for us as it did for Armstrong. But this ambition, when we keep it in the context of the kingdom of God and when we keep it in check by the word of God and by the spirit of God, this same kind of ambition that we see in Armstrong is the same kind of ambition that we see in the apostle Paul as we come to the conclusion of chapter 16. Paul wanted nothing more than to get to Spain, which he believed in his day and time to be the end of the world. And for the known world, it was. That was the outstretches as far as he and my, his mind knew that he could go. And he wanted nothing more than to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Why? Because he lived with a mission. Where did he get his mission from? From Jesus. What did Jesus say before he ascended? Go unto all the world. You're going to be my ambassadors in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to where? The uttermost parts of the earth. And so Paul lived with that ambition in life. Here in our passage today, Paul talks about this desire to go to Spain, which for him, for some reason, necessitates him going through Rome. Now, it's very interesting. I want you to pay attention to his journey that he's laying out for us, because I think it says a lot about his perspective of what his life mission is about and why these places or these journeys are so important for that. Again, he's not going to Rome to forge any kind of new work of the gospel. He's actually stated early on that he knows what his purpose is. And we talked about last week, his purpose is not to build on anyone else's foundation. He wants to go to areas where the gospel has never been declared. So with that in mind, let's begin to work ourselves through the text. Verse 22. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. So because of God's clear call on Paul's life, Paul had been hindered from going to visit the Romans. Why? Well, because he always had these other opportunities to go to these areas around there to preach the gospel. And so as he longed to go and meet these Christians in Rome and this church in Rome that had been doing this great work, his idea was, well, I could go visit them, but they're already preaching the gospel there. I had this opportunity to go to this place and I can preach the gospel to a people who have never heard it. And so over and over again, as his heart longed to go and visit these people, opportunities determined by the mission of his life sent him in a different direction. And so verse 23, but now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. Once I have enjoyed your company for a while, 
Now, so there's, there's, Paul is being very delicate and very intentional in the way that he frames what he's saying here as he comes to the conclusion of this letter. Look at verse 23. Verse 23 is somewhat shocking, isn't it? Look at what it says again. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, no longer have any room for work. Really, Paul? I mean, how many people live in those regions and how many of them are actually Christians? You know, I mean, how much elbow room do you need, Paul? And so he feels like, you know what? I've done everything that I can do here. I've got to focus on somewhere else. Now that's very interesting, isn't it? Because we know from his own journeys that there wasn't a ton of success. He would have these conversions, these small churches, but it wasn't like millions and millions of people were coming and following after Christ. But yet for Paul in his mind, he says, I'm done here. I don't have any more room to work. This, this place is cramping my style. I've got to go in another direction. You see, it doesn't mean that he didn't have opportunities to go out and preach. He did. It doesn't mean that he didn't have other places that he would like to go. He did. It doesn't even mean that everyone in those regions had heard the gospel or had a chance to respond to the gospel because they hadn't. In essence, Paul is emphasizing this amazing faith that he has in God's plan to use his church. In other words, Paul says, I have gone to these regions and I have planted these churches. And as I understand what Jesus taught me is this, God's not going to save the world through me. He's going to use his church. And so the goal of my life is to plant churches. And then it's the responsibility of those churches to go and to preach the gospel in those areas. And so Paul says, as I've gone out, I've seen these converts. I've seen these churches form. And you know what? Yes, they may be fledgling. Yes, some of them may be struggling. Yes, they may not be the most theologically astute. But here's what I know. It is not them. It is not me. It's the power of the Spirit. And I have done what I have been called to do. And you know what? I'm leaving this in God's hands. And God is more than able to finish what he started there. And so Paul says, as I see it, I'm done in these areas. In essence, Paul is emphasizing this understanding that God from the very beginning intended to work through his people, through his church to spread the gospel. It's almost like the pioneers in the... Uh, early American history as they forged their way westward. You know, it's amazing if you go back and look at American history, how much has been accomplished in such a short amount of time. And a lot of that goes to that pioneering spirit. There are tales that are told that people would just keep forging west, forging west. They would go to these new territories. And some of those had that, had that true pioneering spirit. Literally, they would say these types of things. As soon as they saw smoke coming from a chimney, they knew it was time to move on. Why? Because as soon as you see smoke coming from a chimney, there are people settled there. Therefore, we got to keep going further west. And so that was the idea that Paul had. He had this pioneering spirit when it came to the gospel. As he would go to an area, if he saw Christians that were meeting together in a home, he's like, I'm done here. I need to move on till I find a place where there are no Christians meeting in any kind of group. And it's my call to preach the gospel to them, to assimilate them, to help them learn to work together. And then it's on to a new area as soon as I see those things happening. So in actuality, it seems that Paul was looking to the church in Rome as a possibility of being his new Antioch. You know, up until this point, Antioch was kind of the center of his missionary hub. 
It was a place where he would come back to. It was his home church, if you will. But now as he begins to think westward, as he begins to think about going to the ends of the earth or going to places like Spain, Antioch is too far away. And so it seems that as he comes by here, he's thinking about Rome being a new center of the gospel going forward because there's such a strong presence of the church there. And so Paul longs to visit these people. Let's remind ourselves of what Paul said at the very beginning of this letter. If you go back to chapter 1, verses 10 through 13, there Paul tells us his intention is not to come to Rome for primary evangelism. He's not there to go and preach the gospel to people who haven't heard it. Matter of fact, he talks there about this mutual edification. He says, I come there because I have some things to share with you, and also I want to be edified by... So there's this mutual edification. He wants to learn from them, and he has some things that he wants to share from them. It was a renewal time that Paul was looking forward to. And so it's not that there wasn't work left to do in Rome. However, Paul is very clear in his letter to that church in Rome that Rome is just going to be a brief stopping point for him. He makes it very clear, even as he comes to the end of his letter, that his eyes are set on Spain. Now that's a very interesting thing because we've talked about it for a few weeks here. But I want you to know that as you read through this, if you were just reading this and hadn't been doing this study with us, this would actually uh, spark something in you that he mentions Spain here because you don't find that in any of Paul's letters. You certainly don't find it in the book of Acts that there was ever this ambition to go to Spain. There's never a mention of any missionary journey going to Spain. And so this kind of strikes us as odd here. So Paul is beginning to think about how am I going to take this gospel to the ends of the earth? And he begins to say, well, let me look at a map. Let me see where the ends of the earth are. Spain. I've covered this area. I've planted churches here, but I haven't made it to Spain. That's my ambition. That's where I got to go. That's the mission of my life. And so have you ever seen those people who have big uh, maps on their wall and then they, they always put little pins, you know, where they have been in the world? Have you ever seen that? A lot of times at churches, they'll, they'll put that on where missionaries are, but I always like to tease them because let's come in and they have these pins all over the world and they're very proud of them. And I said, man, it seems like you've been all over the world and you've been to the Arctic twice and the Antarctic twice. And then I say, well, I guess you had to do that so that your map would stay on the wall, right? You had to make those journeys first, right? Y'all get that because there's like pins on the corners of it. So it holds, okay, never mind. So when we think about Paul, maybe his desire to go to Spain was one of the things that actually compelled him to write the book of Romans. Why? Because he has this vision that he's been casting and he wants to bring these people into this idea of the gospel going to these outer reaches of the known world at this day and time. He wanted to paint a bigger picture of the kingdom of God, what that looks like in everyday life. Specifically, he says the unity of the body of Christ has to be a goal of ours. We have to work together, Jew and Gentile alike. We have to understand we have this common goal and we have to back up and understand that this whole life idea of our salvation is to bring us together, not to create a division among us. And ironically, there is absolutely no evidence anywhere that Paul ever made it to Spain. Although we know that the gospel shortly thereafter did make it there. 
But we never see anything about Paul making that. Matter of fact, after we work our way through this passage, you can see that Paul has this idea of going to Jerusalem and then going to Rome. Well, we also know that Paul's life ends in Rome. And it's a long journey when he gets to Jerusalem full of all kinds of problems going back and forth. And so why does Paul have this driving ambition and says, my goal, my life is to get the gospel to Spain. And yet seemingly it never even happened. I think there's a very important lesson in that for all of us. And that is sometimes God will give us a dream that in our lifetime will never be fulfilled. But the reason he gives us the dream is so that we will begin to lay the foundation for that dream to be realized in the next generation or maybe the next generation. Sometimes the dreams that we have for life and for the kingdom of God and for this world are never realized in our life, but they will be realized by those who come behind us. And yet if God had not given us this driving ambition, would we even lay the foundation for the next generation to come? So it's very important to have these ambitions, to have these goals, to drive our lives on mission like Paul talks about. Think about it this way. Paul may have never gotten to Spain, but simply having that ambition in his life caused him to slow down and write the book of Romans, to try and settle some things that were going on and maybe even here at the end to try and garner some support and find a new hub for a missionary venture. But here's what's amazing. What has probably done more to advance the kingdom of God? The gospel going to Spain or Paul sitting down and writing the book of Romans? You know, sometimes we think the little things that we're doing are just steps to get to something down the road when in reality, God uses those little steps far greater than we could ever imagine. Sometimes it's just that daily faithfulness of doing what is necessary to achieve those things that we feel God has given us as a dream, as an ambition for life, but yet God uses that daily faithfulness for us to do even greater things. And so Paul has this passion. This passion drives him in everything that he does in his life. And so look again at verse 24. He wants to go to Rome and it says there that he wants to go there to be helped by you. In other words, helped by you in the Roman church is what he's saying there. So Paul brings up ever so slightly the idea of financial and logistical support. Now, here I see in Paul what I also see in myself, and that is I have this huge reluctance to ever talk about money. I hate talking about money because it always gets in the way of people understanding what the church is about. You ever notice at Mars Hill, we don't pass an offering plate. It's not because it's just too hard to pass one because we're not in a straight line. Uh, it really is because I truly believe that it is not you who are actually the ones who facilitate the work of God, it's God who does it. And he offers an opportunity to each one of you to invest in things that are bigger than you, to invest in eternity. Whether you take advantage of that or not, that's your deal. That's between you and God. And if I pressure you into that, you're not giving out of a cheerful heart, you're giving out of compulsion. 
And so we have these little boxes at the back. They call joy boxes. We never really even talk about them a whole lot. But if you are driven to give an offering, it's because something is driving you more than a preacher or a church trying to meet a certain number of dollars so that they can continue to exist. Our philosophy has been, however God moves on his people, that's what we have, that's what we will operate with. And so I think Paul feels that kind of same uh, hesitation. You know, it's amazing. Some pastors have no problem with it at all. And, and I don't fault them for it, but they don't care. Get over there, give your money, you know, take your wallet out, uh, take a couple of dollars out and give the rest of it to us, you know? I mean, it's like no problem at all. And I, I but I, I just, man, I, I get like, I might start tripping over my words. I get sweaty palms. I just don't like talking about money. And it's like Paul is approaching this very carefully because Paul has in the past talked about, hey, I don't take anything. And it's not that Paul doesn't believe that he's not worthy to take some kind of salary. Matter of fact, Paul even argues for other pastors in the regions to say, hey, you need to take care of these guys. But Paul says, but for me, I don't accept anything simply because I don't want it to get all convoluted. I don't want you to ever think I'm doing what I do because I get money from you. I don't want you to ever feel like I owe you anything or you owe me anything. I want this to be about the gospel of God. And so he feels like going into these new areas, presenting the gospel for the very first time, Paul says, it's on me to take care of myself and God will provide for me. And so we can understand Paul's hesitancy to talk about these things, but very carefully here, he introduces this as an opportunity. And he's very clear that whatever benefit that the mission receives, it's not for Paul, it's for the gospel to go forward. It's not so that he can buy a new car or so he can do whatever it is he wants to do. He's saying, man, I hope that you will be partners with me to take this gospel to the end. And if that means money, then money. And if that means resources, then resources. If that means influence, then influence. And that's the perspective that Paul has there. Look how he continues in verse 25. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. He pictures himself here, already on his way to Jerusalem as he's writing this letter. Now, Jerusalem was not a wealthy place. So the Jews who were dispersed from Jerusalem, right? Because we know that they all got sent all over the place. Matter of fact, during the great festivals, even during Jesus' day, they came in from all around the world because they had been dispersed um, previously to that. And so what happens is, these people who lived in these far regions were always sending money back to take care of their brother and sisters, their Jewish brothers and sisters in Jerusalem because Jerusalem was such a poor place, okay? Now, the Christians were not beneficiaries of that goodness that the Jews would send back to other Jews because they were seen as outsiders. They were seen ones who had abandoned the faith. And so it was a responsibility that Paul felt that the churches who were growing to go back and take care of the poor who were in Jerusalem. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but it's very interesting. And I read this article about it and I thought it bears sharing. And that is when you go back and look, we think about the early church and we always go, oh, what it would be like to be in the early church. What Man, they had it perfect. Man, they lived in that perfect community. And what we go and find out is when we read in those early chapters of Acts, how they sold all all of their land and they put it in a common pool, which was very common for people to do in that day and time. Different sects, different religions would do those type of things. In reality, what happened was they depleted themselves of all of their resources. 
they sold the very things that could continue to provide money and they put it in this common. Well, one thing you know is there's always gonna be needy people. And so before long, all of the money was gone. And what is interesting is if you follow Paul's pattern as he preaches to these other Gentile places, he never encourages them to sell their land. He encourages them to take responsibility for others. And so there's this idea that if they have land, if they have businesses, if they own things, then they can continually be producing more money and they can take care of the poor that are around them. But if we sell everything we have, now we have no way to make any more money. And now as soon as the money's gone, we are all dirt poor. And seemingly that's what happened there with the early church in Jerusalem. They sold everything they had, they depleted their resources and a famine came and they had nothing. And so Paul has taken up this money from some other churches around the area and he's taking this money to Jerusalem to take care of these people. Look how he continues in verse 26. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Now, this is very interesting because if you don't pay attention to this and you only see it as kind of a referential matters at the end of the letter, you miss the fact that Paul is tying together all the theology that he's been presenting to you throughout the book of Romans and he's showing you how it applies in everyday life. Paul says that he has this sizable donation that's been made by the Christians from two different churches. Now these two churches are from areas that are largely Gentile. So let's look at this a little more closely. The Jerusalem Christians were poor. We determined that, right? And so they were in great need. And so Paul says that these Gentiles had benefited from the spiritual blessings of the Jews and they owed it to the Jews to provide or help with material blessings. And so the most, the greatest blessing that we could possibly have is the spiritual blessing. And when Paul talks about the spiritual blessing, make no mistake about it, Paul's talking about the gospel. He's saying, you would have never had the gospel if it weren't for Jewish missionaries who brought it to you. Therefore, you have benefited from the greatest thing you possibly could in this world. And that is the invitation of a knowledge of Jesus Christ and the invitation into the family of God that secures not only your salvation, but your salvation into eternity. And he says, so you owe it to them. You owe it to them to help take care of them and help take care of the needs that they have. So these Gentiles were beneficiaries of those early Jewish missionaries. And now Paul says that it's right for those Gentiles to share material blessings with them again. So what you might miss as you work through it, the Gentiles up until this point were probably all focused on money in this world. They were focused on how much they could make, how much they could spend, how much they could improve their lives by how much money they brought in. Now, all of a sudden the gospel has come into the picture and here's what Paul is saying. Have you really understood the gospel? Has the gospel really transformed your life? Because if the gospel has really transformed your life, you're not thinking about those things anymore. All of a sudden you realize that it's not about this world. It's not about how much I accomplish or how much I have for retirement or how big of a house I can have or how nice of a car I can drive. It's not about those things anymore. Now, all of a sudden you have to realize that there are this, there's a spiritual element to how we live and how we act and how we focus, how we spend, 
how we live. And so in the same thought, Paul expresses this apprehension about making the trip to Jerusalem to deliver this money. So these Gentiles who have been transformed by the gospel, now who used to always focus on money, are ready to relinquish this money to go back and help those who first brought the gospel to them. Do you call that partnership or what? This is what Paul's been preaching all the way through the book of Romans. Now, Paul says, but there's this apprehension I have of even taking this money to Jerusalem. Why? Why do you have this apprehension, Paul? Well, not only was there danger there, but there was also the potential of the gift not being received. Now, there was danger there because the Jews hated Paul. They saw him as a traitor. There was also danger within the church in Jerusalem because many of them saw Paul as, well, I don't know if he can be trusted. It seems like he's been negating the law a whole lot lately. It seems like he's, he's negating these things that we have brought up and held true for so long. And so Paul, in their eyes, even though they respected him, there was this kind of in the back of their mind, this idea of, can we trust him completely? And so as he goes and takes this gift, the question is, will these Jerusalem Christians even accept it? You say, well, of course they'll accept it. I mean, they have this huge need, right? They, they have this, this, this need that requires money. They, they, they're, you, you don't understand Jewish Christians in this day and time because they were very prideful about what they believed. And if at any moment they thought that Paul was bringing this money to sway them over to Paul's side, they would not accept it. If they thought for a moment, if it was in their mind that this money is tainted, it may have come from the selling of idols from these Gentiles. What did these Gentiles do to get this money? And if they in their minds at all thought, we can't accept this because this is dirty money or this compromises our morals or our values, then you know what? Listen to me. If that happens in Paul's mind, there's no reason to go to Spain. If the gospel can't help us to come together, if we can't get over these trivial things and understand the truth of the gospel, if I go to Spain, what do I have to invite them to? If the very ones who brought the gospel now no longer have anything to do with us and we can't get along with each other in Jesus Christ, that's why this is so important for Paul. That's why this becomes his focus. That's why he has this apprehension about taking this gift there is because if it's not received, then this whole thing that he's been preaching falls apart. And now Paul is demonstrating this practicality, the importance of all these things that he's been writing and preaching. So this offering has a very practical application of the whole theology of the doctrine of justification that he's talked about here, justification by faith. So think about it this way. It shows that Gentile Christians, by giving this offering, find their roots in Israel, which he talked about in chapter 11, verses 11 through 24. At the same time, it insists to the Jewish Christians that their Messiah is also the Messiah of the Gentiles, which he talked about in chapter three, verse 27, chapter nine, verse five, chapter 10, verse 12. 
And at the same time, this is precisely why Paul expects opposition. Both the physical Jews and the theological Jews, the Christian Jews, are coming at him from different perspectives. This is why he wants the Christians in Rome to pray for him. Think about it. Paul says that he's coming to them, but only after he's been to Jerusalem for the purpose of delivering this. And the question we would ask ourselves is this. Why does Paul even feel the compulsion to go to Jerusalem? Doesn't he have a whole lot of other missionary buddies that could deliver this money for him? Why is he taking this on himself? Isn't he supposed to be focused on these places that have never had the gospel? For Paul, this moment is so important to the future of Christianity. It's so important for him that he says, I am going here. I have this confidence that the work of Christ is going to continue, but I want you guys to know this is so crucial because everything that I've talked to you about, if this gift is not received, that means that they don't understand this. This is really what Christianity is about, that we can come together and we can work for the kingdom of God. And so Paul says, I myself am going to deliver this money. Now, here's what's amazing. Where Paul is, and Paul says, I want to go to Rome before I go to Spain, but I have to go to Jerusalem first. He is taking a 1,000-mile detour. 1,000-mile detour of where he really wants to go. That's how important it is for Paul. Luke tells us in the book of Acts that the trip to Jerusalem was a near disaster. There were riots, there were beatings, there were trials, two years of imprisonment. There was a shipwreck involved during the whole time. So when we think about Paul's ambition, he was not taking this on, just taking this money there and going, oh, here you go. Hope you can take care of yourself. Now I'm headed to Rome. I'll see y'all later. No, there was this great fear. There was this apprehension. He knew what was before him. And he says, yet I still, I have to take this. As much as I feel driven to go to Spain and take the gospel to Spain, I feel just as driven to take this money to Jerusalem. And that's why he wants the Christians in Rome to pray for him. Look how he continues in verse 28. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now notice the certainty in Paul's words. He says, I know. Paul, he, he, he really had no idea what was ahead for him. He knew that it was gonna be tough, but he didn't know how tough it was really gonna be. And there's this sense of uncertainty in the words that he just expressed. And yet there's this full certainty that he comes to at this point. How can that be? Because the end result Paul understood is dependent on God. I see this as crucial, but even if they don't accept it, somehow God's gonna make this all work out. Why? Because it's on him, it's not on me. It's not on me to make everybody get along. It's not on me to mend all these rifts. I do what God called me to do, but ultimately it is the power of God and the sway of God that's gonna continue the movement of God. And so no matter what happened, he was sure of experiencing some blessing of God. God has given us a very clear mission. But would you agree that sin oftentimes blinds us from that mission? Instead of trying to make great the name of God throughout the nations, our sinfulness and our selfishness cause us to attempt to make our own name great. 
We're more concerned with our needs and our wants, and we become less concerned with the needs of the lost world around us who need a savior. Remember, the gospel is a life or death situation. But when we come to understand and believe that Christ left everything behind to come to us, it's in that moment where we are able to give up the things that we think we deserve and we can leave them behind and we can go and take that good news to the people who need it. Why? Because that's the model that was set for us by Christ. The gospel does not leave any other response for us. We must live a life of mission and we must be willing to go just as Christ was willing to go for us. And so that is our call. And if we are not careful, we can misunderstand the call to missions because a lot of us think, well, a call to missions is this. I quit my job, I leave my family and I go to a foreign land and I have to live there and dwell there until I die. But clearly the gospel turns our focus away from ourselves and directs it outward. And so that could be in the context that we just described, but it could also be in the context of being here and thinking missionally all the time. How am I pouring my resources into missions? How am I praying for those who are on the mission field? How am I engaging those around me who may be from different nations, who then could take the gospel back to their own nations? How am I thinking missionally, no matter what it is that God has called me to? Because let's be honest, God calls some people from very influential jobs to leave those jobs to go to the mission field. We've seen it many, many times before. But there are also probably even more people that God calls into those very tough jobs to make gobs and gobs of money so that they can in turn pour that money back into sending the gospel throughout the world. Both of those are important in the perspective that Paul has. And so the gospel makes Christ and the things of Christ the first importance in our life. Christ lived his whole life on mission for us. And before he left this world, he left us with this mission to carry on this work. The gospel is a free gift, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't costly and that it doesn't continue to be costly. We might be called to go or to give up more than we could ever imagine. And the gospel should compel us to respond to that call in our life. Sometimes God calls us out of that corporate rat race Sometimes God calls us into that corporate rat race, either calls us out of it to go, calls it in it to give. There's one theologian who reminds us that we only have three choices when it comes to the call of God on our lives. Go, sin, or be disobedient. Those are the only three. You're either someone who's going, you're someone who's sending, or you're someone who's disobedient to the call of God. I hoped, I hope that the best, the very best that this generation has to offer will be willing to go. I hope that the very best that this generation has to offer will be very successful in this life so that they can send people all over the world. And anything you can do here, you can also do on the mission field. A physician, a professor, a secretary, an accountant, a waiter, a mixed martial art. I mean, that's what I was gonna do before God made it clear that I was supposed to be a pastor. That, that was a joke, okay. Missions is simply doing what the Lord has gifted and called you to do 
where there are few or no Christians around you is thinking missionally. How can I use the gift that God has given to me to further the kingdom of God? See, it calls us to forsake the American dream for the glory of God. Y'all have heard of many of these missionaries, but I just wanna remind you of their lives. You've heard of Lottie Moon. How many of y'all grew up Baptist? Man, you know about Lottie Moon. You probably grew up thinking, have we not paid this lady off yet, right? Because <laughs> like every year there's like that Lottie Moon offering, right? And, uh, but if you actually learn more about Lottie Moon, uh, you would understand that her life the ambition that drove her was an amazing thing. See, Lottie Moon, very similar to us, although she lived 150 years ago, she grew up in a wealthy Southern family in Virginia. She was wild during her teenage years and into her college years. And during her college years, she became a Christian. In 1873, she became a missionary to China. She stayed in China for 39 years. She was 32 years old when she left for China. She left behind a marriage proposal. She left behind a job. She left behind a home. She left behind her family. She left behind the chance to inherit a fortune. When she got to China, for the majority of the first part of her missionary experience, she was feared and she was rejected. And yet she refused to leave because she said God had called her there. The way she started getting the children and the people and the women to come in to her house, she started baking cookies. The smell of the cookies drew the people in. Can I get an amen? I mean, that's like VBS, those little flower cookies. That's how we get those kids in there. But you know, Lottie Moon also embraced the culture. She wore the traditional Chinese dress. She learned Chinese's language and customs. And Lottie didn't just serve the people of China. She identified with the people of China. Many eventually came to accept her. Some even accepted Christ as their savior. But after disease and turmoil and the lack of coworkers willing to leave behind America and come and join her there on the field, all of that set to undo all the work she had done in her lifetime. But regardless, she gave herself completely to God, helping to lay that foundation that would later become the modern Chinese church, which we know today to be one of the fastest growing Christian movements in the entire world. Lottie Moon died when she was 72 in declining health. After decades of ministering to the people in China, but her le legacy lives on. There's another man by the name of Raymond Lowell Raymond Lowell was considered to be the first Western missionary to the Muslims. Toward the end of the Crusades, after 200 years of conflict of Christianity and Islam fighting against each other, uh, Lowell, after finding Christ and feeling called to this mission, said, we're fighting the wrong kind of battle. We don't fight this with the sword. We fight it with the gospel. And so Lowell spent nine years preparing to go on mission. He was striving to learn Arabic. He developed a Christian apologetic in response to what he knew the Muslim questions was gonna be. And in 1292, at 56 years of age, Lowell set out on his first missionary journey. Did you hear that? 56 years old, he set out on his first missionary journey. For his destination, he chose Tunis, the Western center of the Muslim world, in the site of the seventh crusade in 1254, which was a failure for King Louis IX of France. 
And so he went to this place and he said, I'm gonna take this on single-handedly. He began to challenge the Muslim scholars to public debate and he did it in Arabic. And as a result of these debates, several of them began to convert to Christianity. But he was quickly imprisoned and banished. They placed him on a ship and were sending him back to his homeland. And while they were putting him on the ship, he jumped off the ship, escaped, went back into there and spent some time encouraging these new converts and discipling them. On his own free will, got back on a ship, went back to his hometown. 15 years later, he went to a new city in the port of Algeria. He went to the square, he began to promote the gospel openly. A mob ensued. He was in prison for six months. He was bribed and tortured to recant. They wouldn't bring him to court because they thought he might be too influential with his arguments. They also wouldn't kill him because the European kings at that time loved him so much. So they just shipped him out again, a little more careful, a little more guarded to make sure that he made it all the way back. In 1315, when he was 80 years old, he made his third and final trip to that same city. Secretly for one year, he ministered and discipled to those young converts in that area. He was then just compelled after a year of doing that, I've got to preach the gospel. And so he went back out into an open square where a mob ensued and he was beaten and he was taken outside the city and stoned to death at 81 years old. This is one of the things that he said in his memoirs. It is my belief, O Christ, that the conquest of the Holy Land should be attempted in no other way than as thou and thy apostles undertook it to accomplish it by love, by prayer, by tears, and the offering up of our own lives. Iconic missionaries that we think of in our day and time, what I want you to understand, we're just ordinary people like you and I. Have you ever heard the name William Carey? He's considered to be the father of modern missions. You know what he was? A shoemaker, a cobbler, before moving to India for the rest of his life. David Brainerd, you've heard of him, missionary to the Native Americans in New Jersey. He was actually an orphan and a farmer before feeling that call of God on his life. David Livingstone, he worked in a cotton mill as a child. He eventually got a degree in medicine. He learned midwifery and botany. And he gave all of it up to become a medical missionary in Africa. You ever heard of Hudson Taylor? He began practicing medicine before preparing himself for life on mission. He spent 51 years in China and eventually founded the China Inland Mission. These are everyday people who somehow the gospel transformed them and transformed their lives and transformed the story of their lives. My question to you and to me is this, have we embraced that radical of a gospel? Look how Paul continues in verse 30. I appeal to you brothers by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. So Paul's not looking for a superficial flowery prayer. He wants wholehearted involvement here. Notice that he even describes it in terms of conflict. He says, join me in my struggle 
And there's a very real struggle going on between the forces of good and the forces of evil. And most significant part of that struggle is our prayer lives and us coming together in prayer. See, it's through our prayers that our will becomes unified with the will of God. It's our human struggle seeing God's divine answer. In prayer, one man becomes the representative of others and others become the representative of that one man. I love how one theologian put it. He says, awareness of a fellow believer's difficult situation will move the authentic Christian to join that person in prayer. So even though Paul exhibited confidence, he also asked his brothers and sisters in Christ to join him in the struggle by praying to God on his behalf. Now that's amazing. Why? Because he talks with this great confidence, God's going to do this. And then he follows that up and say, will you join me in this struggle by praying for me? Which leads me to this conclusion. Prayer is not a lack of confidence and confidence should never lack prayer. Do you see that? Prayer is never a lack of confidence, but confidence should never lack prayer. But a lot of times that's where we mess up, isn't it? I got this. I got this. Worst three words you can say to yourself because you know disaster is about to ensue when you tell God, I got this. I don't need it. I don't need to come before you. I got, this is a strong area in my life. I got this, God. You take care of all these other things. Here's some areas I need your help with, God. I got this. That's about to implode. Confidence should never be without prayer. Paul urged the believers in Rome to enter into his conflict by joining him in prayer. This request demonstrates humility. It was this intense spiritual struggle that he was feeling that compelled him to invite others into that struggle with him. How? By praying for him. You see, pride keeps believers from sharing their need for spiritual help. Again, this place should not be a job interview. It should be a doctor's office. We shouldn't be coming to this place trying to prove to everyone how good we are. We should be coming to this place saying, I need your prayers. I need your help. I need you to stand on my behalf and plead before the Father on my behalf. See, Last part of 31, look at it again. That my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Why was this so important? Well, look at the next verse, verse 32. So that by God's will, I might come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. A question we might ask is this, why is Paul even making this journey, right? A thousand miles out of the way, get somebody else to deliver that money, Paul. No, he felt that need to deliver it himself. Remember, this is one of the reasons that he's writing this letter to the church in Rome was because Jews and Gentiles have to see this gospel the same and it's to bring us together, not to divide us. So if the offering was not accepted, there may be no reason for Paul to go to Spain. And it seems that Paul is here recording what he hoped was going to be the answer to the prayers that the Romans were going to join in him with praying. For Paul, it wasn't just about the gift or the relief that it might provide for those Jerusalem Christians. It was about mending the rift and moving towards unity. Verse 33, may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. And so the chapter closes with a prayer. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So he is the God of peace. In that sense, Paul is saying he alone is the one who can give peace. As Paul writes in Philippians 4, 7, it is a peace that transcends all of our understanding. This kind of peace can be experienced. It can be enjoyed, but it can't be rationally explained. 
It's a peace that comes to us even in the midst of trials and confusion and disappointment. True peace is associated with God so much that Paul literally characterizes God by it. He's the God of peace. See, the gospel tells us that everyone is called to be on mission and to live a life on mission. Missions is not just going to a foreign land. We can all be on mission wherever we find ourselves. It's about perspective. Are you living your life with a mission in mind that's bigger than yourself and bigger than this world? And even if we cannot be involved in a foreign or even a vocational mission ourselves, we can still support and pray for those who have been called to a full life of ministry wherever God has called them. And so we think it would be fitting today if we would do that very thing before we leave. May we spend some time praying for those who are on the mission field, for brothers and sisters throughout the world who maybe through our busy day, we may not give any thought to, but in this moment, can we pass these words without thinking about the duty that we have to pray for one another, for the unity and for the gospel to go forward, amen?